Welcome to episode number 120 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we hear from Berk Essen, Assistant Professor of International Relations at Bilkent University in Ankara. He's the author alongside Shebnem Gumushchu of the paper Why Did Turkish Democracy Collapse? A Political Economy Account of the AKP's Authoritarianism, published a couple of months ago in the journal Party Politics. The article is a very interesting account of how Turkey descended into what the authors call a competitive authoritarian regime. Instead of ideological factors like religion or culture, the paper offers a political economy account examining resource distribution and the mutual dependency that ties various businesses and social groups to the government, leading to mounting repression and the systematic violation of civil liberties. SN also recently published another paper called Praetorian Army in Action, a critical assessment of civil-military relations in Turkey in the journal Armed Forces and Society, and we also address that article a bit later in our conversation. But before we get going, first let me remind you once again that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. As a member, but you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other related content in the email that we send to members with every new episode, which is perfect if you want to delve a bit deeper into the subject. So to become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Berk Essen. We spoke just a couple of days after it was announced that Istanbul's Hagia Sophia would be converted from a museum to a mosque. So I started by asking him to reflect on what he made of this decision and what it tells us about the state of the current government. I think this move was taken out of desperation on the part of uh, Erdogan and his administration because uh, in the past he has a number of times raised this issue but decided not to go ahead and uh, turn Hagia Sophia into a mosque. And in fact, I think just last year, in 2019, uh, is given a long interview and, and a speech during which he actually said that he was not going to do it. So this is certainly a reversal on Erdogan's part and reeks of desperation. Desperation in the sense that Erdogan... And 
his party are, are really running out of resources to distribute to his base and cannot really jumpstart the economy, especially against the backdrop of a, of a pandemic. Uh, so in order to win elections and remain popular, um, Erdogan really doesn't have many other policies left that he can use. So he's going back to the old populist leader uh, sort of playbook tactics of uh, figuring out issues to generate so that he can consolidate his base and polarize the society. And of course, Hagia Sophia has, has, has always been, historically speaking, going back to the 1930s, an electrifying issue, uh, not so much for the entire Turkish electorate, but I think for, um, for an important segment of the Turkish conservative camp, especially during the Cold War uh, for many pious voters, turning Hagia Sophia into a mosque was not just a symbolic move, but it, it, was, it was also an important political statement in the sense that uh, this would demonstrate that Turkey was no longer really a secular regime uh, that was excluding pious voters, right? Uh, so uh, Erdogan, uh, being very much raised uh, with those issues in the 1970s and 1980s, being a product of uh, Cold War cultural battles, I think uh, went back to this uh, issue and decided to uh, use it. Probably the main goal is to make sure that these uh, newly established splinter parties within the Islamist camp. I'm referring to, obviously, uh, the parties uh, formed by um, uh, Davutoglu and, and Babajan, two critical uh, figures who have served as cabinet ministers under the AKP governments. You know, Erdogan is trying to make sure that these splinter parties will not be able to chip away votes or uh, erode uh, AKP's uh, base. Now, he may succeed in maybe gaining half a percentage point uh, if the election were to be held uh, this fall. Uh, but I don't think that the effect will be uh, substantial. And, and that's the other reason why I find this move to be rather rather a desperate one, because I don't think that it really speaks to uh, the real concerns of much of the electorate. And it certainly does not really reflect the, uh, the main uh, issues that are shared by uh, especially uh, young uh, voters who are coming of age uh, under the AKP government and are really caring for more substantive political and economic issues as opposed to the cultural ones. So it's significant in the sense that this is yet another nail in the coffin of Turkish secular regime. And it's going to take a while for uh, seculars coming to power after Erdogan to reverse all of these steps. But as a political move, it's quite desperate. It will backfire. And I don't think that it's going to bring Erdogan a substantial number of votes. Turning to the paper that you published very recently in the journal Party Politics, why did Turkish democracy collapse? A political economy account of the AKP's authoritarianism. Uh, you pen that with uh, Shebnem Gubishu. And the title of the paper there refers to the collapse of Turkish democracy. And that gives a, an idea really of the rather pessimistic view that you take. And in the text, you define a regime as a competitive authoritarian one. Uh, could you just briefly really describe what that latter term means in practical terms with regard to Turkey? Um, certainly. Um, this is actually not a term that uh, we came up with, but rather uh, it was coined by two uh, political scientists, Luke Lay and uh, Steve Levitsky, who have been working on Eastern Europe and Latin America as two regions that have democratized quite rapidly in the 1990s, but then went on to experience a, a significant amount of democratic backsliding. Uh, so we ended up borrowing their term in order to characterize the Turkish political regime, which uh, by 2015, 
2015 no longer satisfied even the minimal uh, criteria or the conditions of, um, of a democratic regime. So that we classify Turkey as a competitor authoritarian regime uh, because of the fact that all political parties are allowed to contest elections. They can campaign somewhat freely uh, and that winning elections is really the only uh, legitimate path to coming to power. And there is still some level of uncertainty, which I think creates or infuses a certain amount of competitiveness to the uh, current regime. However, the regime is still authoritarian insofar as uh, there is an uneven playing field between the ruling party and the opposition parties, and that uh, the opposition parties really face an uphill battle in running against uh, the government. Uh, the incumbent uh, controls uh, the state apparatus in a rather partisan way and uses uh, its uneven access to public and private resources in order to weaken the opposition and survive in power by basically uh, winning these elections. Uh, under the AKP rule, certainly starting from the party's second term, 2007, bit by bit, Turkey has become uh, competitive uh, authoritarian. Uh, the ruling party gradually captured the state apparatus and has uh, eroded rule of law and used the state institutions that it controlled to distribute resources to its cronies in a rather partisan uh, manner uh, to create a pro-government camp within the business sector, within civil society, within media, and uh, basically punish those who were opponents of the regime in a rather systematic manner. So uh, at the end of this process, starting from the late period of the party's first term, early second term, all the way till 2015, so nearly a period of a decade, the AKP government, bit by bit, ended up expanding its hegemony over the political system and eventually created this competitor regime. Now, parallel to that process, what we've seen was a monopolization of power at Erdogan's hands. Obviously, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has always been a charismatic and popular leader within the Islamist movement. But again, starting from the party's first term, Erdogan ended up accumulating more and more power to the extent that basically by uh, 2015, he was the undisputed leader of the Islamist movement and thus the uh, ruling uh, party and really pushed for uh, a regime change in order to formalize, in order to institutionalize the enormous amount of power that he enjoyed over the political system. So really, the paper is about offering a political economy account of this democratic backsliding, which resulted in the collapse of uh, Turkish democracy. And we look at partisan resource distribution in order to explain this process. So central to this transformation is clientelism. As you described there, uh, there's a quote from the paper that I will read here. Uh, you say, quote, pro-AKP business is dependent on the government for capital accumulation through public procurement, construction permits, cheap credit and tax reliefs. The AKP, in turn, is dependent on business for financial, material and human resources in the form of campaign contributions, government-friendly media, donations to pro-AKP charities and foundations and the provision of goods to the urban poor. The urban poor provides electoral support the government needs in order to stay in power and injects democratic legitimacy to the system despite its increasingly undemocratic character. In exchange for the political support, these poor voters receive selectively distributed social welfare goods, jobs and charitable goods from the AKP government and pro-AKP foundations. Um, so you're really there touching on the kind of untransparent networks of mutual dependency that have really planted ever deeper roots, really, under the uh, AK Party in recent years. Just talk about that in a bit more detail for us. You know, what's behind them? Could you just give us a couple of concrete examples of that at work? 
Oh, certainly. Um, I, and I think this this was actually quite a nice summary uh, of our article, of my article with uh, Dr. Shebnav Gümüşçü. Uh, we claim that uh, gradually the uh, ruling party ended up creating a partisan base, first with the electorate, at least with the uh, AKP voters within the electorate and uh, the business sector, the pro-government uh, business elites within the business sector. Uh, and basically uh, that resulted in a triangular uh, dependency between the AKP the voters and the businesses. Uh, the AKP elites, their responsibility was to offer partisan resource distribution uh, so that these uh, uh, pro-government uh, businessmen and pro-government uh, voters would receive all sorts of benefits, uh, resources, advantages uh, in exchange uh, for their political and uh, economic support. So uh, this was mutual dependency in the sense that it went both ways. Uh, the AKP ended up providing, uh, for instance, cheap land, public contracts, uh, legal tenders to pro-government uh, businesses. It ended up changing the legal system in such a way that pro-government businesses were favored in many of these sectors. So, for instance, think of the increasing number of accidents that are happening in the mining sector, in the construction sector. Actually, when you systematically look at the companies where these ac- accidents take place, they tend to be pro-AKP uh, uh, businesses. And, of course, that's a clear indication of the fact that the bureaucracy is either afraid or is compelled to basically not take any kind of precautions and enforce the uh, security mechanisms uh, that should be in place and that allows these businesses to accumulate enormous amount of profit. Now, the same thing goes for urban transformation projects that have happened in uh, major metropolitan uh, areas. Uh, The destruction of urban space in Istanbul and Ankara have created enormous amount of rent for pro-government contractors. A very similar uh, transformation that has happened uh, in the healthcare and energy sector. Uh, that have been very radically actually privatized uh, during the party's first two terms. And many of these privatized assets were given to a pro-government businessman. Now, these people in turn are expected to donate to the campaign of the ruling party, offer bribes, so personal gain uh, for uh, some uh, AKP uh, politicians. And they're also expected to support uh, the AKP's legislation within the business uh, sector and and to provide consent for for its uh, policies. And lastly, and we see this very clearly uh, in the media sector, some of these uh, major pro-government businessmen are expected to finance the media organs that ended up adopting a very pro-government government editorial line. Now, from a market point of view, actually, when you uh, look at these companies like ATV, Sabah, and and many others, they lose money uh, because of the editorial line that they adopt. But uh, at the end of the day, they decide to still contribute to these media organs and not sell them. It's because this is part of a deal that uh, the government has made with these businessmen. Uh, You know, in in Turkish, we call it the havuz mediası, right? The pool media. These media barons end up getting hefty, uh, very profitable, lucrative uh, legal tenders from the government in exchange for financing the pro-government media, right? So this is this is a mutual dependency that happens that has happened uh, between the ruling party and the business sector. A very similar process happens with the voters as well. Voters have received all sorts of programmatic as well as direct benefits. Programmatic in the sense that uh, the AKP has managed to lower the inflation rate and uh, expanded the uh, Turkish economy during its first two terms, which has really vastly benefited uh, the urban poor living in major metropolitan areas. But also the AKP uh, has engaged 
engaged in partisan distribution to those neighborhoods that vote for the ruling party in high numbers. So if you are a voter living in an AKP stronghold, you know that you're going to get more bus lines than the CHP uh, controlled uh, neighborhoods, that you're going to receive more municipality services, as well as probably uh, um, all sorts of uh, social benefits from the ruling party uh, because you're part of the AKP camp. Now, in exchange for the support, voters are expected to mobilize for the ruling party, vote for the ruling party en masse, and also give consent to the ruling party's increasingly authoritarian uh, policies, right? So uh, I think at the root of this partisan resource distribution process lies consent for the political changes that have happened uh, under the AKP government. And I think this is one of the major contributions of this uh, of this article. We try to separate ourselves, distinguish ourselves from the rather more ideology-centric or leader-centric explanations that have been put forward by the literature. We don't think that the voters and businesses support the AKP because of its Islamist agenda. That may play somewhat of a role, but the real reason is resource distribution. We also think that Erdogan managed to monopolize power over the last decade so efficiently because of the fact that he was at the top of this resource distribution process so that both the business elites and the voters knew that these benefits were coming from Erdogan and thanks to Erdogan, right? So many of the existing explanations only offer a one-way process and do not really account for the question of why. And so hopefully the political economy account uh, will uh, will do that. And lastly, uh, let me mention, uh, we, we actually offer a causal mechanism to account for this process uh, by looking at the cost of tolerance, the changing political calculus for uh, the AKP supporters. Now, since these supporters, both in the business community and the uh, within the electorate, are the winners, their cost of toleration for any opposition party has really uh, gone up in the sense that it has become increasingly more difficult for the AKP camp to tolerate any kind of dissent and opposition because dissent and strong opposition means that the AKP may actually lose that election. And if the AKP were to lose that election, then the pro-AKP supporters will lose all sorts of benefits, right? So the cost of toleration is going going up. And conversely, the cost of suppression is going down. Usually in democratic societies, when a government uses aggressive tactics and repression against its own people, against certain constituencies within the society, it loses popular support, even among its own voters, right? Because the cost of suppression uh, is quite high. What we see in the Turkish context is because of this resource uh, distribution process, the cost of suppression goes down to such an extent that the AKP voters and probably pro-AKP businessmen do not really care so much about the repressive tactics that have been used against the opposition because it benefits them, right? So this resource distribution process really strengthens the AKP base, creates winners and losers, and it polarizes society uh, between these winners and losers to such an extent that uh, AKP no longer really has accountability, neither to its voters nor obviously uh, to the opposition. And that resulted in breakdown of the uh, Turkish democracy. One of the reasons I like the article is that it takes this structural view that you mentioned there. It's really a political economy based uh, view of things. It doesn't really focus on ideology. Uh, and that's very nice because, you know, we all know this very tired debate that is had all the time about Islamism and whether Islam is, you know, naturally authoritarian, etc., etc. It's all a it's a rather tired debate. What role do you think, though, what role do you assign, if any, to uh, culture or religion in helping to consolidate authoritarianism? 
I tend to see Islam or, or let's say, cultural and religious factors as the oil of this machine. The machine really runs on partisan uh, resource distribution conducted by the ruling party. But obviously, not just any party could have established this, this machine. It would have been a lot more difficult for a non-Islamist party to nurture such close ties between the uh, ruling party, uh, the businesses and the voters for a number of reasons. One, I think Islam or, or Islamic sort of solidarity already enabled the ruling party the fairly sizable uh, base. For instance, if CHP were to try to push for this model, its base would be 20 to 25 percent, and then it would have been extremely difficult to create a stable uh, majority, whereas it's a lot easier for a conservative party, be it political Islamist or not, uh, to be able to start off with a sizable base. And also Islam played contributed to, to this process in the sense that starting from 1980s with the neoliberal transformation of the Turkish economy, we witnessed uh, the emergence of a generation of pious Anatolian businessmen who were um, actually quite integrated to the world markets, who were exporting a set of goods uh, to the international markets, and they've ended up throwing their support uh, behind uh, the Islamist movement, uh, particularly uh, after the 1990s. So I think in terms of also finding pro-government businessmen, uh, the fact that uh, the AKP came from an Islamist background or origins made that process a bit easier. And also I think Islam or or cultural values, religious values, have played a rather strong role in persuading the workers, uh, particularly low-income workers, uh, to support this system. So these religious values have created, you know, have made it uh, a bit easier for AKP voters living uh, across the Anatolian uh, periphery to support the party as well as pro-government uh, uh, uh, businessmen because they were they all shared a common religious ethos. So I think religious values sort of was the engine, was the oil of this uh, machine so that the pieces worked well uh, without really going rotten. Uh, but otherwise, it's not really uh, exactly the machine. Now, when I look at uh, Turkish political history, going all the way back to the 1950s. Actually, a set of right-wing parties have tried to impose such a model. Uh, for instance, the late 1950s, Democrat Party came very, very close to creating a triangular dependency with uh, pro-Democrat Party businessmen and uh, Democrat Party uh, voters. Uh, but in the end, uh, they couldn't really succeed uh, in doing that. I think Özal, uh, to a certain extent, also tried this in the 1980s. Uh, but also in his case, there was a rather strong societal opposition at the end of the 1980s, which uh, prevented him from really establishing this uh, fairly strong operation uh, in place. So it was left to the AKP uh, to do that throughout the 2000s. Now, parties have always really been hugely clientelistic in Turkey. When you look at going back decades, as you mentioned there, right back to the 1950s and beyond, you know, factions and interest groups have always attached themselves to parties in a kind of parasitic relationship. How is the uh, AK Party different? What has it done differently to those previous examples? Or is it just the case that, you know, it's had more opportunity to to really uh, execute the same method uh, because it's been in power for longer? 
Um, I, I think there's certainly that. Uh, the fact that AKP has been in power for nearly two decades uh, enabled the ruling party to put in place this very strong uh, coalition. And of course, uh, members of this coalition have uh, much more confidence in AKP as opposed to other previous right-wing parties, right? Because the whole model depends on the fact that both the pro-AKP uh, um, voters and businesses assume that the AKP will win the next election so that this resource redistribution distribution process continues. If they were to have strong doubts that the opposition will win, many of them would probably hesitate before uh, supporting uh, the AKP because many of these coalition partners would want to remain uh, within the winning camp. Uh, because it's too risky to be left outside of the uh, winning camp, right? So the longer that you stay in power, the more demoralized uh, the opposition becomes and the more credible the ruling party becomes in conveying the message to the voters that they will win the next election. So there's certainly that. However, uh, the AKP uh, has a set of advantages that I think previous right-wing parties in the Turkish political context did not have. Uh, the first one is that the AKP's Turkey is a lot more urbanized than the the old Turkey, the so-called uh, old Turkey. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think it, it was in early 1990s that Turkish society has reached 50% urbanization rate, which means that before the early 1990s, so for the first seven decades of the Turkish Republic, the Turkish society was overwhelmingly rural. So the kind of clientelistic mechanisms that right-wing parties put in place in the Turkish context, I'm referring to Democrat Party in the 1950s, Justice Party in the 1960s and 70s, and briefly the Motherland Party in the 1980s, very much depended on distributing resources to the countryside, which of course is not all that efficient, because in order to expand your economy in the 20th century, you need to increase productivity, and an urban economy tends to be a lot more productive than rural economy. So what happened as a result of this resource distribution process prior to the 1990s was high inflation. Right? Turkish economy went through boom and bust cycles. Uh, boom cycles uh, enabled these right-wing parties to expand their vote share, 1950 to 1954. In Democrat Party's case, 1965 till 1969. In the Justice Party's case, because they ended up pumping money into the countryside, offered high prices to Turkish farmers, even though uh, Turkish farmers were not producing their wheat and barley and other agricultural products in a rather efficient manner. So the Turkish governments were paying above a certain market price, which created inflationary pressures and resulted in budgetary gaps or budgetary deficits that ended up busting the Turkish economy, which created instability, rising urban discontent, and uh, obviously growing opposition against these uh, parties. And as soon as they turned more authoritarian, the military uh, stepped in. Uh, so that's one major change. I mean, Turkey is no longer really a majority rural, but in fact, most of the people live in the urban areas. The other big change is, of course, privatization. This is actually uh, true for many other developing countries as well, but uh, the Turkish economy underwent a set of major structural uh, changes, starting from 1980s, that introduced a set of new liberal economic reforms, and that pushed the Turkish economy to focus on export production as opposed to inward uh, sort of import substitution uh, model. 
what this did was, whereas in the past, um, many Turkish urban workers had full job security and they were protected by high tariffs. Starting from 1990s, you had a growing number of uh, rural citizens move to the urban areas, but they could no longer find jobs at factories, but became precarious, non-unionized workers who did not have job security and who were not really paid high salary. So they became dependent on uh, social assistance, local government services, and all sorts of benefits and favors coming from the political elites. And AKP, uh, or let's say the Islamist movement, starting from the welfare party's victory in the 1994 local elections, was really the perfect actor to fill this uh, vacuum. So in that sense, I actually see an elective affinity between right-wing conservative populist parties and this sort of privatized pseudo-neoliberal economy that Turkey had. And and I think uh, there are other cases around the world that fit this model, right? What India is going going through with Modi, what Eastern Europe has experienced over the past decade, the rise of the Republican Party in the American uh, South uh, starting from 1980s. There is that, you know, elective affinity uh, between religion, conservative populism, and uh, this partisan resource distribution in an uh, increasingly uh, open economy. So AKP really mastered that machine. But I think by 2020, we are uh, experiencing an exhaustion of this model because there is really no longer a migration from the Anatolian countryside because Turkey is already, I think, 85% uh, urbanized. And many of the people who have moved to the big cities and who become staunch uh, AKP supporters, they are beginning to have some doubts because AKP is no longer really generating significant economic growth. And the children of these migrants who moved to the big cities in the 1980s, 1990s and early 2000s are now beginning to go to universities and looking for jobs and seeking better opportunities, right? So basic uh, municipality services and basic precarious jobs are no longer satisfactory for this young uh, conservative voters. And as we are seeing in the opinion polls, AKP is increasingly having difficulty having access to these voters. So I think we are beginning to see, much like the late 1970s and 1980s, ended the inward-looking Turkish economy and resulted in a shift from import substitution to export-led growth model. We are experiencing an exhaustion of this extremely corrupt urban economy that the AKP mastered, and probably a, a completely different political actor will need to emerge within the next few years in order to fill uh, the resulting gap or vacuum. Looking ahead there, I mean, with a lot of speculation is going on about the post-coronavirus order that's going to take place domestically. And, you know, one way of looking at that, one thing that some have been saying is that as quality of life declines for some uh, people, or perhaps most people, and unemployment rises, perhaps uh, people will become even more dependent on the kind of networks that the ACT Party has kind of mastered in recent years. So it may actually be that as the economy sort of perhaps struggles in the next couple of years, uh, rather than threatening Erdogan's position, these economic struggles might actually make people even more committed to his government. What do you make of that kind of argument? 
Um, I, I think it's an excellent question, and this, this is actually a point that I wonder from time to time because uh, I am rather hopeful about where things are headed in the Turkish context and feel that uh, the ruling party is in almost free fall, uh, losing a substantial number of votes over the next five years. And I tend to see this process to be rather irreversible. Now, um, President Erdogan tends to be a lot more popular than his party. He's still a very charismatic, popular politician. Um, but even in Erdogan's case, I see uh, both in the election results, but also in the opinion polls, uh, a rather steady uh, decline that I think is going to continue in the next uh, few years. So I find this to be a rather excellent question because it's a good thought exercise to challenge this view. Now, I don't think that this will happen for three particular reasons. One, the EKP government no longer has the resources to really satisfy uh, its substantial base. And of course, Turkey being a competitive authoritarian regime, uh, the incumbent still needs to win elections. And unlike many of these electoral authoritarian regimes around the globe, like Venezuela, like Russia, like uh, for a very long time, uh, Malaysia, you know, Turkey doesn't have a rentier economy. Uh, Turkey, in other words, doesn't have natural resources that uh, it can sell in the outside markets and then capture the profits and distribute in a partisan manner. In order for ATP to win elections, it has to generate economic growth. And uh, with the current uh, presidential system, I no longer think that that can happen. Now, against the backdrop of an economic crisis and rising unemployment and inflation rates, you know, voters may give AKP one chance, but I think they've already done it in the in the last two elections. You, you know, you may remember that in, in June 2015, AKP experienced an electoral defeat and then turned it around quite substantially in November 2015. Uh, now, the voters had given Erdogan yet another chance by accepting the constitutional uh, uh, amendments in the 2017 uh, referendum. Now, the process was rather flawed and still controversial, but let's assume that that referendum was won uh, by the ruling party. And then in 2018, voters elected Erdogan as their president. So uh, voters have already given Erdogan and his party the benefit of the doubt in the last few elections, and the result not changing, the economic uh, conditions not really improving, I think they are beginning to uh, change their mind. So that's that's the first uh, reason. The second reason is that because of the monopolization of power at Erdogan's hands, those businessmen and voters who are benefiting from this uh, regime is shrinking. Now, in the past, many businessmen had benefited from the public contracts that were uh, distributed by the government. Voters were given all sorts of services and benefits and so on. But what we are experiencing over the last few years is a, a shrinkage in the AKP's elite base. And as a result, Erdogan has surrounded himself with a very small group of economic and political elites who are true loyalists. But a growing number of people have been left out of this coalition, left outside of this coalition. Now, because of this situation, it's actually uh, extremely difficult to once again go back to that old machine where you are distributing resources to uh, millions of people. Um, now, the third reason is uh, the opposition-controlled municipality the governments. I think uh, the opposition mayors, particularly in major metropolitan uh, areas, particularly uh, I'm referring to uh, Istanbul and Ankara, but also uh, Izmir, Antalya, Adana, Mersin, and Eskişehir. These are some very sizable urban uh, areas in the Turkish context. They all have opposition mayors or mayors from the uh, main opposition party, uh, CHP, and they seem to have done uh, quite a good job of delivering resources, benefits, 
benefit social assistance uh, to the needy uh, during the pandemic. They've continued to deliver all sorts of public goods to low-income neighborhoods uh, in these areas. So uh, clearly there is an alternative. So now voters can actually negotiate with their local uh, AKP chapters. So uh, because of these three reasons, I don't think that Erdogan has actually strong bargaining power in threatening voters into voting for him. And that is the reason why uh, I think Erdogan is now pushing for these cultural issues. Going back to your uh, first question about the Hagia Sophia, Erdogan is really seeking these kind of uh, cultural veg issues because he no longer has anything else left at his disposal in order to gain the uh, support of his voters. Turning back to that cultural or ideological question, uh, looking ahead, it seems that uh, nationalism is really in the ascendancy and it has been for years now, rather than religion. And some pundits, well-informed pundits, look at the social and political trends over the, the last uh, few years uh, and even go as far as to suggest that Islamism as a political project is effectively dead. How do you see things developing on that ideological front? Um, I, I am actually one, one of these uh, people who claim that the, Islamism, uh, the, the Islamist movement is intellectually dead and it's only a matter of time that uh, the Islamists uh, will lose uh, for two particular reasons. One, you already suggested uh, this uh, in your question. Uh, we are beginning to uh, see uh, the resurgence of nationalist movements uh, around the globe, but particularly in uh, developing countries that have not yet consolidated their democratic regimes. And even in the West, uh, there is a, a sort of resurgence of far-right populist movements that are uh, challenging international organizations and trying to revitalize uh, the nation state. Part of it goes back to uh, the changes that happened, the rapid changes that happened in the world economy over the last three decades that have really benefited the so-called cosmopolitan globalized citizens around the globe. So those people who are educated, who travel abroad, who speak other uh, foreign languages and who can actually practice their profession almost anywhere, right? So these people have really benefited uh, from the globalization process, but uh, otherwise those people with very limited skills who only speak their own native tongue are, at least many of them, are the losers of this globalization uh, process. And I think many of these voters are now going for anti-free trade positions that revitalize uh, the nation state. Uh, of, of course, uh, many of these nationalist movements tend to have a secular basis. In some isolated cases, one could talk about, for instance, India would be a very good uh, example of this. And I think Turkey to a certain extent, where you have a fusion of nationalism and religion, right? So, for instance, uh, the Hindu nationalists are both nationalists, but also they uh, subscribe to, in some cases, extreme Hindu uh, uh, belief systems. And I think the two reinforce one another. I think this is what we are already seeing in the Turkish context and what we will continue to see in the next few years. And the fact that Erdogan decided to forge this electoral alliance between the AKP and MHP is already facilitating this transformation uh, so that many pious conservative voters in the Turkish context who have supported AKP since uh, the party's founding are also embracing Turkish nationalism and Turkish ultranationalism. And of course, Turkish ultranationalism historically have been at ease with Islamic uh, issues. So we are seeing a perfect merge uh, between these two 
factions, and that's really going to come at the expense of political Islam, because of course, in the Turkish context, political Islam was always wary of going with Turkish nationalism. They have, uh, you know, even in Erdogan's case, he has criticized MHB in the past ferociously. Uh, Islamists have been known to get a lot of support from Kurdish voters, who on average tend to be actually more conservative than their Turkish counterparts. So that is changing, and, and I think that's one major reason why political Islam is dying. The other uh, reason, however, uh, is, uh, you know, this has been now a trendy topic, the so-called Generation Z. Now, I don't want to suggest that all members of a particular generation act in a uniform manner, irrespective of class and gender and ethnicity. However, I think it is the case that because of the phenomenal technological changes that have happened, uh, the widespread use of internet, social media, easy travel, and so on, those voters who were born after 1995 tend to be a lot more educated, a lot more open-minded, a lot more secular than their older counterparts in the Turkish context. And so we are already beginning to see a very strong support for an open lifestyle, gender uh, diversity, and uh, a mixing of genders in, in physical spaces, as well as a very strong support for uh, secularism. So because of these two reasons, I don't really see any future for political Islam in this country. And lastly, one of the reasons why political Islam have uh, really arisen, starting from late 1960s all the way till 2010s, was this notion of resentment uh, among some pious voters, right? They they had a resentment towards the secular regime. They had a, a, a number of grievances uh, that they wanted to redress. Uh, but of course, with the AKP being in power for nearly two decades, I, I really have difficulty coming up with issues that really energize the Islamist camp uh, in, in, in a sort of, in, in the same manner that, for instance, the headscarf issue have energized and mobilized Islamist voters uh, all throughout 1990s and, and 2000s. And looking at the debates uh, around Taji Sophia, one gets the, the same uh, sense the young conservative voters are not really ecstatic uh, about this decision. And many Turkish secular voters are completely opposed to this transformation, but they have not necessarily taken to the social media to or, or to the streets to, um, uh, in very strong terms, oppose the government, right? So these kind of cultural issues are losing their appeal and probably the Generation Z will not really discuss these issues in the 2020s. And that's the other reason why I think political Islam will be dead uh, in the near future. Now, you've been uh, very busy of late. You also recently published an article called uh, Praetorian Army in Action, a critical assessment of civil military relations in Turkey, which was published in the journal Armed Forces and Society. And this article uh, was another one that I enjoyed very much. Uh, it discussed the army, really, and, and really slayed a few shibboleths that have uh, somehow survived until today about the Turkish military having always been this kind of monolithic Kemalist institution. You paint a much more complicated picture saying that, you know, yes, Kemalist factions have been very influential and dominant at certain periods uh, but actually that's not the whole story you know different factions at different levels of the chain of command have been very influential at various points and they've really shaped different inflection points in history and um, and you kind of examine coups that have occurred in Turkey in, over the years and sort of examine the very different characteristics of those coups you know the, the different ideological underpinnings of them uh, just wonder if you could summarize if possible the argument that you make in that paper and talk about what kind of triggered you to write that paper in the first place. The civil military literature in the Turkish context is really ahistorical, uh, in the sense that uh, many of the existing studies 
treat uh, the Turkish army as a monolithic organization, a sort of a camelist guardian actor that have not really changed over the decades, despite the fact that the entire world has changed and Turkish politics uh, has changed. And they have really only uh, focused on camelism or the camelist ideology in order to explain the Turkish military's uh, moves. And they've completely disregarded how the Turkish army itself was actually quite divided between different factions and have collaborated with different uh, political actors. So my, my goal in writing this piece was to introduce history into the Turkish civil military literature and to also come up with a more nuanced viewpoint of how the Turkish military uh, operate. Now, in doing so, I was actually challenging the two main arguments or positions in the Turkish civil military uh, literature, which oppose one another, but otherwise, you know, accept uh, all these assumptions that I've just uh, mentioned. So I was challenging the viewpoint that Turkish military was not interested in pursuit of power and that it only intervened because civilian politicians couldn't get their acts together and that as soon as a new regime uh, and, and a new constitution uh, was put in place, the Turkish military voluntarily left power. This is not true. Uh, this, is, this is not really an accurate depiction of how many Turkish officers uh, acted uh, after each one of these coups that we had, including the 1960 coup, the 1971 uh, memorandum and the 1980 coup. Uh, in every one of these instances uh, or, or coups, there was a rather interventionist hardliner faction within the military that wanted to radically transform the, the Turkish political system and wanted to actually stay in, in office uh, for an extended period of time. What really persuaded the military to leave was actually uh, pressure from political elites, uh, as well as lack of strong uh, civilian uh, support. In, in the case of the 1960 coup, uh, there was a moderate faction within the military, and that moderate faction uh, was supported by the CHP, uh, led by uh, İsmet İnönü, but of course CHP support came with a, a very clear call for early elections, which eventually uh, the moderate faction of the junta had to accept. Again, a similar argument could be made for the 1971 uh, memorandum. There were groups that wanted to really radically change the constitution. Uh, and by the way, those who came to power, uh, who toppled the Demiral government in 1971, had a completely different ideological viewpoint than many of the 1960 junta uh, members. But eventually, what really changed things was an energized opposition from the CHP, as well as lack of support from any of the mainstream parties in the in the parliament which persuaded the military to step down and uh, agree to uh, call for um, call for election so this was the one major sort of viewpoint that i wanted to really challenge and refute the other one however was this uh, rather simplistic notion that the military acts as a camelist guardian actor and topples governments because of secularism and in order to impose a, a camelist agenda onto the society. Now, on certain occasions, maybe certain factions within the military really subscribe to this to this viewpoint. But really, when you look at the behavior of the Turkish military from a historical perspective, this viewpoint does not really explain all of its uh, actions. Uh, well, first of all, contrary to what this literature uh, suggests, in many of these coups, uh, CHP was also negatively affected. The 1980, uh, after the 1980 coup, CHP was closed down, just like uh, all the other uh, political parties. 
Greece. The uh, 1971 memorandum uh, ended up really uh, pushing against the CHP and actually the, uh, the military elite co- collaborated with many right-wing politicians as opposed to uh, CHP politicians, at least uh, CHP politicians from a leftist background. Hence, Bülent Ecevit's increasing opposition against the junta government. Um, but also, when you look at the rationale for successful coup d'etat as well as failed coup d'etat, uh, the reasoning is different in each one of these cases. Uh, for instance, this literature completely ignores the fact that in 1962 and 1963, a coronal in the Turkish army tried to stage a junior officer-led coup d'etat against an Inuni government, right? So Mustafa Kemal's second man, uh, Ismet Pasha, was already a prime minister at the time, and he was about to be toppled by a, a, a group, uh, by a junta within the military. Uh, in the lead-up to the 1971 uh, coup d'etat, um, there was actually a very strong leftist faction uh, within the um, the military. Another faction came to power in March 12, 1971. But had the leftist faction came to power, one of their plan was to close down CHB and completely transform the Turkish uh, political system in a rather leftist manner. Right. So uh, you have all these different ideological factions. Uh, you, you know, you had all throughout the Cold War a very strong pro-NATO faction within the army. However, this faction was opposed by some nationalist officers who had incorporated some leftist ideas. So for me, the goal in writing this paper was to introduce history to the civil military literature and to really refute rather these simplistic uh, arguments, either coming from a Kemalist background or an anti-Kemalist background, in order to offer a more nuanced viewpoint on how Turkish military functioned as a political actor. That was Burke SN. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 120. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can become a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use follow via twitter or like our facebook page and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com finally don't forget to check out turkey book talks partner initiative turkey recap turkey recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists razier atkoch and diego cupolo friends of turkey book talk it's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all major developments in turkey over the past seven days dropping into your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns and they've just started a Turkish language version so that's also well worth supporting. Search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Bütün dünyayı,